The convergence of large numbers before the preacher's platform may be very impressive, but can it play any part in the conversion of onlookers? Our answer to that depends upon the doctrine of human nature and of the new birth. The issue thus resolves itself into a question which is not simply about evangelistic methods, but rather about the theological beliefs. What is conversion and how does it take place? What is the work of the Spirit in regeneration and how does the general work of the Spirit by which he speaks to the consciences of the unregenerate by the word differ from his special and saving work? Did God do no more for Matthew than for other publicans who heard Christ preach and were not converted? Did he do no more for Saul of Tarsus than for other Pharisees who knew the truth and did not respond? Why is it that some believe under the preaching of the gospel and others believe not? A consideration of these questions will show that the difference between the users and the non-users of the invitation goes much deeper than a question of methodology. Harold J. Ockinger, who, as noted earlier, professes to see the difference as only one of methods, himself supplies the evidence to the contrary by the following statement of the belief which underlies the system. Some Reformed theologians, he says, teach that regeneration by the Holy Spirit precedes conversion. The evangelical position is that regeneration is conditioned upon repentance, confession, and faith. This alone stimulates evangelism. We bypass the form in which this assertion is made, though it is a strange use of the word evangelical to attach it to a view which cannot be found in any of the great evangelical confessions and catechisms of the Reformation and Puritan eras. Auchinger's claim is that man's act must precede the saving work of the spirit of regeneration. This is not to say there is no prior activity of the spirit. The Bible makes it plain that the Holy Spirit attends the preaching of the word and enables the sinner to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. The key word is enables. The Holy Spirit, according to this view, gives a general help to all who hear the gospel, but the final choice rests with the individual. His is the decision which results in salvation or reprobation. Therefore, let men be brought to decision and their regeneration will follow. Such is the order of salvation according to the invitation system, and it is claimed that to teach any other order is to nullify the stimulus for evangelism. Certainly we are prepared to grant that the whole case for the public appeal can be reduced to the question whether this order of salvation is right or wrong. If it is wrong, the invitation should be given up, which is, of course, an entirely different thing to saying that evangelism should be given up. Let us turn to see how the belief claimed to be the evangelical position is related to the invitation practice. When giving the invitation, Graham may say, you can only come when the Spirit draws you. By this he evidently means that where a person is willing, the Holy Spirit is at work. But what is this work which is attributed to the Spirit? Is it not regarded as his regenerating work? Because at this stage Graham treats men as outside the kingdom until they apply their ability to the decisive act of receiving Christ. You have that ability to choose. You stand at the crossroads. You may never be as close to the kingdom again. I believe your heart is specially prepared. You get up and come forward. We weigh for the moment this question of a general enabling work of the Spirit. 
a work of which both those who are ultimately saved and those who are lost may be the subjects. How does the hearer understand this exhortation of Graham's? The impression he receives is that the willingness he needs is a willingness to come forward, and once the person who has made the public response is seated with his counselor, he is again told that willingness is all that is required. Says Charles Riggs, when a person is willing to see himself as a sinner and willing to step out by faith to commit his life to Jesus Christ, he can do so by simply opening his life to the Savior. At this point we need to make it very clear and simple. It is like inviting a guest into your house. You invite Jesus Christ to come into your life by faith. In Revelation 3.20 we have the picture of Jesus Christ standing at the door of the heart, the emotion, intellect, and will. He cannot force his way in, but will come in where he is invited, and where he is invited he says, I will come in. Riggs follows this with the pattern prayer in which the individual receives Christ, already quoted in Graham's own words. In the decisive step being taken, the counselor is told, it is necessary to show the individual on the authority of God's word what has taken place. Let the inquirer know that Christ came in, Revelation 3.20. Here is a practical question to ask an individual who has just prayed, asking Jesus Christ to come into his heart. Where is Christ now? If you have made it simple, and the person has understood what he has done, he should be able to say, He is in my heart. All this proceeds on the assumption that if men are brought to a state of willingness, a crossroad has been reached and may at any moment be crossed. Furthermore, it is supposed that willingness in an unsaved person is proof that the Spirit has prepared the individual for salvation, because surely the sinner of himself would be unwilling to come to Christ. The argument runs thus. Major premise. Only men prepared by the Spirit are willing to receive Christ and be saved. Minor premise. Men willing to receive Christ come forward. Conclusion. Those who come forward to receive Christ are assuredly saved. But major and minor premises alike contain a fallacy. The major premise falsely assumes that any willingness which the unregenerate possesses is a willingness which is preparatory to conversion and rebirth. The word of God, however, makes it clear that there may be a temporary willingness and mental consent in the unregenerate which makes them for a time ready to profess Christ while the natural enmity of their hearts towards God is still unremoved. Matthew 13, verse 20 In such are the windings of the human heart in men's natural blindness in dealing with the concerns of their own souls that it is not necessary to believe this kind of non-saving response only occurs where there is conscious hypocrisy. On the contrary, it may be quite sincere. The principle of self-interest in the human heart is sufficient to account for this type of response to the gospel message, especially if such a response has been represented as a means to satisfaction, peace, the solution of besetting problems, and such like. We may even go further with scripture and say that where the truth is preached there will be a general kind of conviction wrought by the Spirit which disturbs men's consciences and makes them willing to look for some relief. Yet until they have been quickened into newness of life by the special call and operation of the Spirit they will certainly not receive relief in the divinely appointed way by coming to Christ. Rather, they will proceed to act 
on that principle which lies at the root of all natural religion, the belief that man can do something to put himself right with God. Thus Herod, with his conscience disturbed by the preaching of John the Baptist, was willing to do many things. Mark 6 verse 20 This willingness in Herod existed side by side with a basic attitude of hostility towards a holy God. The scripture never minimizes the fact that the conscience of a natural man may lead him to religious activity while his nature remains unchanged. The peril is that we should imagine such activity to be an initial stage in the process of conversion and to tell people in this condition, as Graham does, that going forward is the first step and that when we take it, God will do the rest. This is appealing to the false principle of works referred to above, which the natural man has always assumed to be true, and it is no wonder if he responds. Nor is it enough to reply that, because people are clearly told they must come forward by faith, there can be no danger of a type of salvation by works in the invitation system. Under inadequate gospel preaching, where only men's duty to repent and believe is emphasized, and his need of rebirth to produce this response is passed over, it is very easy for hearers to confuse their own mental assent with a faith which is not of ourselves but the gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Harold J. Ockinger meets the last charge and quotation from Ephesians with a flat denial. He says, Faith is erroneously ascribed to God as a gift. See Ephesians 2, 8, where gift is neuter and faith is feminine. Salvation is the antecedent of gift. Man is commanded to repent, to believe, to convert, the Bible places these acts within the ability of man. This statement brings everything into the open. Faith must not be spoken of as a product of saving grace because it lies within the ability of every man. But much more than a retranslation of Ephesians 2.8 is needed to prove this. Not a few expositors competent to distinguish between neuter and feminine have held to this correctness of the common translations and whether in this particular instance it is faith which is viewed as the gift of God or the whole salvation of which faith is a part, the general tenor of the apostles' teaching is plain. Faith is of the operation of God. Colossians 2 verse 12 Unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ to believe on him. Philippians 1.29 The real thrust of Ockenge's argument does not depend upon the particular verse but on the assumption that a biblical command implies ability on the part of those addressed. This assumption has often been shown to rest upon the fallacious equation of responsibility with ability. Spiritual inability is a part of the sin for which man is responsible. For Jesus there was no inconsistency with charging the unbelieving Jews with both responsibility and inability. Why do ye not understand my speech? even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil. John 8, verse 43 and 44. What is at stake here is not merely a variation in theological belief. Our charge is that the invitation system leads inevitably to the danger of hastening unregenerate men to confess their faith. In connection with this, the words of experience of the late Louis S. Schaefer are noteworthy. 
Schaefer, a well-known American evangelist himself, used the invitation system for some time before he saw reason to abandon the practice. Among the considerations which led him to give up calling Harris to the front, he names the following. Because of satanic blindness to the gospel of grace, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4, unregenerate men cannot comprehend the two bases of salvation and is therefore overprone to do the best he knows. This is to attempt to work out his own standing before God by his own efforts. It is this natural tendency to do something of merit that prompts many to respond to the evangelist's appeal. A leader with a commanding personality, and every successful evangelist must possess that characteristic in the extreme, may secure the public action of many when the issue is made one of religious merit through some public act. Under such an impression, a serious person may stand in a meeting who has no conception of what is involved in standing by faith on the rock Christ Jesus. Or he may be persuaded to abandon his natural timidity when he knows nothing of abandoning his satanic tendency to self-help and resting by faith on that which Christ has done for him. The basis of assurance which all such converts, if questioned carefully, will be found to be no more than a consciousness that they have acted out the program prescribed for them. While it is not necessary for the gospel preacher always to emphasize the truth contained in the Lord's words that men cannot come to him until specially called by the Father, John 6 verses 44 and 65, it is never permissible to represent an unregenerate man as being able to do what Scripture declares he will not do. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, John 5 verse 40, Romans 8 verse 7, etc. Some may object to this charge on the ground that Billy Graham and others who use the invitation method affirm their belief in human inability apart from the Spirit of God and in the necessity of the divine drawing. But it is not here questioned whether Graham accepts the text which teaches this, as a Bible believer he must do so. The issue concerns the meaning of these terms. The American evangelist believes in a general influence of the Spirit accompanying the Word, which renders men able to respond. But until they do the latter, they are still unregenerate. We are made alive by trust in Christ. These are his words, and he confirms this order. First our commitment, then our rebirth. In his own testimony, they were singing the last verse of the song when I went forward. The first step was the hardest I ever took in my life, but when I took it, God did the rest. The rest is the new birth. Nowhere does Graham teach that it is only when God takes away a heart of stone and implants a new nature that true faith can be exercised. For him the Holy Spirit provides a general enabling power whereby unregenerate men may fulfill a condition necessary to their rebirth. His evangelistic method accords with this belief. In contrast to this view, we believe that the scriptures distinguish between a general work of conviction by the Spirit, such as may make an Esau weep and a Felix tremble, and the special life-conferring call given by the grace of a sovereign God to those whom he has chosen. Only those who are predestined receive this call, and it is clearly stated not to follow justifying faith, but to precede it. Romans 8 verse 30, Acts 13 verse 48, etc. And to secure the consent of those to whom it is given, 
John 6, verse 36 and 37, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 8. It is those who are born again who see the kingdom of God and thus believe the gospel. We turn to the minor premise and the syllogism. Men willing to receive Christ come forward. Certainly if a person who is under the saving operations of the Spirit is told authoritatively by a Christian preacher that he must come forward, he will be likely to do so out of regard for what he believes is God's command. And if such a person is later told that his coming forward was the vital point towards rebirth, he may believe it until he learns better. We are not for a moment asserting that no one is converted where the invitation system is employed, only that the system has, in reality, no connection with rebirth. Some are converted in spite of it and not because of it. But what of another class of persons, the class who are willing to come to the front and who by this very activity are confused into thinking they are coming to Christ? In their case, the premise is false because many unwilling to receive Christ in the biblical sense of the term are willing to walk forward. For this large class of persons, the theology of the invitation system really leaves no room. It virtually reasons, if they are unwilling, they would not come forward. If they are willing, they must be saved. An argument which hangs its entire strength on equating coming to Christ with coming to the front, and which supports that if men have enough will to do the one, they can also do the other. The walk forward and the receiving of Christ are both reviewed as within the province of human ability, as though there were no essential difference between the ability by which a man goes to the front at a meeting and the power which turns sinners from darkness to light. Let us also note at this point how the invitation procedure has affected the vocabulary in which the gospel offer is proclaimed to sinners. The words believe and repent are now largely replaced by other terms such as give your life to Christ, open your heart to Christ, do it now, surrender completely, decide for Christ, etc. And in similar language, those who profess conversion are sometimes represented as having given in. To Graham, this question of vocabulary is unimportant. Speaking of conversion, he says, call it anything you like, call it dedication, call it surrender, Call it repentance, call it grace, call it anything you like. But many years ago, Professor Albert Dodd of Princeton pointed out that the phraseology employed to bring people out in public commitment to Christ during a service is significant. Commenting on Charles Finney's favorite phrase, Submit to Christ, coupled by Finley with going to the front, Dodd observed, We are at no loss to understand why Mr. Finney presents the sinner's duty in this form. Submission seems to be more comprised than some other duties within a single mental act and more capable of instant performance. Were the sinner directed to repent, it might seem to imply that he should take some little time to think of his sin and of the being whom he has offended. Or if told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he might be led to suppose that he could not exercise this faith until he had called up before his mind the considerations proper to show him his lost condition and the suitableness of the offered Savior. Repentance and faith, therefore, will not so well answer his purpose, but with submission he can move the sinner to the instant performance of the duty involved. In the mental darkness, 
consequent upon this unscriptural exhibition of his duty, and while flurried and bewildered by the excitement of the scene, the sinner is to perform the double duty of submitting and of deciding that he has submitted. Who can doubt that under these circumstances multitudes have been led to put forth a mental act and say to themselves, There, it is done, and then hold up the hand to tell the preacher they have submitted, while their hearts remain as before, except indeed that now the mists of religious delusion are gathering over them. Had this system been designed to lead the sinner in some plausible way to self-deception, in what important respect could it have been better adapted than it now is to this purpose? Conclusions 1. The invitation system, because it represents an outward response as connected with receiving Christ, institutes a condition of salvation which Christ never appointed. 2. Because the call to come forward is given as though it were a divine command, those who respond are given reason to believe they are doing something commendable before God, while those who do not are falsely supposed to be disobeying Him. 3. By treating two distinct issues, coming to Christ and come to the front as though they were one, the tendency of the invitation is to mislead the unconverted in regard to their duty. The real issue is as stated in John 6.29. This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The false is, get up now and come to the front. This follows, says R. L. Dabney, unavoidable confusion of conscience. If the person awakened has dignity and good sense, he will probably refuse to come, and then the drift of the system is to tell him that therein he has rebelled against God and grieved the Holy Ghost. Hence, groundless distraction. If he is more gullible and goes, it is implied that he has performed a saving act, or at least one that has gratia congruens. It is in vain, they disclaim, for the common sense reasons why so much urgency if the means is not truly effective of something. 4. A willingness to come to the front on the part of the unconverted may be due to various reasons. Natural self-love, seeking for happiness, a disturbed conscience seeking relief by a religious act, the conditioning influence of a large meeting where others respond, and so on. Because this kind of willingness possible to the unregenerate man cannot, by the very nature of the invitation system, be distinguished from the willingness of those who, by regeneration, have had the natural enmity of their hearts removed, many are led to suppose that their natural willingness, which brings them to the front, is all that is needed to become a Christian. The public counseling and prayer which is given them before they leave the meeting serves to confirm them in this idea. 5. Because the invitation system itself precludes the possibility of discrimination between individuals during a public service, the sincere outward response of those who are still unconverted is calculated to lead to further unbelief and hardness of heart when they find that no real change has taken place in their lives. They feel that a cruel trick has been played upon their inexperience by the ministers and friends of Christianity in thus thrusting them in the hour of their confusion into false positions. They are conscious that they were thoroughly in earnest in their religious anxieties and resolves at the time, and that they felt strange and profound exercises. 
yet bitter and mortifying experience has taught them that their new birth in experimental religion at least was a delusion. How natural to conclude that those of all others are delusions also. They say, the only difference between myself and these earnest Christians is that they have not detected the cheat as I have. Six. There is reason to believe that the number who go through the form of receiving Christ after an appeal and who then fall entirely away is not inconsiderable. The thing is so well known, wrote a last century observer, that in many regions the public coolly expect about 45 out of 50 or even a higher ratio to apostatize ultimately. In parts of America, where the invitation system has been practiced for many years, it has become necessary to record second-time decisions, as a number who respond have already done it before. This discredits evangelical truth in the eyes of the world. 7. Those who do come to a knowledge of Christ through evangelistic services would lose nothing by the omission of the invitation, while the hurrying of them into a public act with its inevitable prominence may well prove a disservice. Archibald Alexander, one of the founders of the great training school of evangelical preachers at Princeton, New Jersey, who had wide experience of powerful revivals, wrote of the public appeal from his own experience. It may bring young people who are diffident to a decision and, as it were, constrain them to range themselves on the Lord's side. But the question which sticks with me is, does this really benefit the persons? In my judgment, not at all, but the contrary. If they have the seed of grace, though it may come forth slowly, yet this principle will find its way to the light and air in the very slowness of its coming forward, may give it opportunity to strike its roots deep in the earth. Similarly, R. L. Dabney wrote, In almost every case where true grains of living wheat are found among the masses of chaff, Raked together by these efforts, there will be found a preparatory work in the heart, the result of intelligent scriptural teaching and consistent Christian example, watered for some time by the Holy Spirit in the retirement of their homes. And the only result of the revival appliances as to them has been to hurry them a little, perhaps in their disclosures of their new feelings, and at the same time to mar and pollute the wholesome soundness of their spiritual character. Had scriptural means of grace been used with them and no others, they would have come into the church in due time, none the less surely, and with a piety more symmetrical and profound. 8. The invitation system inevitably directs attention primarily to the outward and the immediately observable, and in so doing serves to support a false standard of judgment. Louis S. Chafer rightly says, where the spectacular element in public soul winning is eliminated, there is little opportunity to count supposed results, and the test of conversion is taken wholly out of the sphere of profession and made to rest on the reality of a changed life afterwards. 9. When the invitation system is employed with apparently great success in crusade meetings and yet not used in local congregations where ministers can point to no such immediate visible results after services, the impression is effectively conveyed either 1. that the ministry of the churches is not the most effective way of evangelizing or 2. that the churches should also employ the same program and methods as are used in crusade meetings. 
If we accept the first alternative, the idea is fostered that evangelism means special meetings with a leader who has a calling distinct from the pastors of congregations. If we accept the second and labor to introduce non-scriptural measures into local churches, there is evidence to show that the long-term effect on the consenting congregations is not deeper spirituality and power, but rather the reverse. Evangelism, instead of being a normal part of careful and regular expository preaching with a twin effect on the consciences of the unconverted and on the growth in grace of Christians, becomes a special dramatic activity. This leads to the orientation of church life away from scripture and as scriptural and non-scriptural duties become confused, the main duties which God requires of Christians and ministers are overshadowed. As Schaefer observes, the efficiency of the whole company of believers must depend upon their proper adjustment to God in the cleansing and fitting of the individual lives. Just here there is a grave danger lest the church shall ignore her God-appointed work and the necessary individual preparation for it and attempt to substitute the wholesome machinery and appeal of the modern evangelist in its place. 10. The invitation system misconceives the role of an evangelist. The gospel preacher is not a spiritual obstetrician appointed to supervise the new birth of sinners. Still less is he called to propose ways which, if complied with, will accomplish the rebirth. John Kennedy, one of the greatest evangelists of Scotland, whose death in 1884 was described by C.H. Spurgeon as a loss to the highlands greater than could have befallen by the death of any other hundred men, shrewdly saw that the whole tendency of the invitation system, as it was then being first introduced, would be to alter the work of a gospel preacher. According to the new evangelism, he writes, faith is represented as something to be done in order to salvation, and pains are taken to show that it is an easy thing. Better far than this would it be to see to it that those with whom they deal are truly convicted of sin, and to labor to set forth Christ before them in his glorious completeness as a Savior. To explain faith to them that they may do it is to set them still to work, though setting an easier task before them. I know well the tendency there is at a certain stage of anxious inquiry to ask, What is faith that I may do it? It is a legalist's work to satisfy that craving, but this is what is done in the inquiry room. Who is he that I may believe on him? was the question asked by one who approached the drawing of a day of salvation. Explanations of what faith is are but trifling with souls. How different is the scripture way? The great aim there is to set forth the object, not to explain the act of faith. Let there be conviction, illumination, and renewal, and faith becomes the instinctive response of the quickened soul to the presentation of God by his Christ, and without these no explanation of faith can be helpful to anyone. The labor to explain it is too often adapted to the craving of the illegal spirit. It is wiser to take the pains in removing ignorance and error regarding God and sin and Christ. Help them to know these if you would not build them up with untempered mortar in a false peace. If you would be wise as well as kind, work in that direction rather than in hurrying of them to belief. Quotations from other writers 
Why is it so that profane and ungodly men think it so easy to believe in Christ? And they say they do it with all their heart when it's plain by the scripture they are not such to whom those glorious things of the gospel do belong. 1. They think it's so easy because they take presumption for faith. They think they believe because they presume. Now to presume is easy because it is a work of the flesh. It is suitable to our corruptions. The prophet complained that the Jews, though they committed all lewdness, they would come and lean themselves upon the Lord and trust in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, etc. That is not faith which most of the world have. It's presumption, it's carnal confidence, such as those who had said, Lord, have not we prophesied in thy name? Such as the foolish virgins had, Matthew 25, and such as Paul had before his conversion when he said he was alive, Romans 7. 2. They look upon faith in Christ as easy because they divide the object. They take some things of Christ, not the whole Christ. They think it's only believing on him as a savior for pardon for sin. They do not choose him as a Lord, to whom in all obedience they resign themselves. This is indeed the rock that splits many. Tell them of believing in Christ, and they think that is only to rest on him for salvation. They attend not that it is receiving of Christ for all ends and purposes God sent him into the world. Now one main end besides our justification and salvation is our sanctification. To redeem to himself a people zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 To communicate his spirit so as to make holy as well as his merit to make happy. There are many who desire to be the Lord by redemption but not by sanctification. They would have Christ's blood, theirs, but not his spirit. In all Judas's eminency and profession of Christ, he had no true love to Christ, no saving faith. Who can hear of Judas that preaches, that works miracles, that is often in duties with Christ, yet he is not sincere? And therefore you may observe that our Savior in all his sermons and parables did press this as the sum of all, to look that we build upon a rock, to see that we dig deep in our buildings, that we be good ground, receiving the seed in a deep and honest heart. No subject did our Savior so much insist on as this, when yet we would think in those days when Christ's teaching and miracles were so visible and outward encouragements to profess him wholly wanting that none should follow him but upon sincere and upright grounds. From Anthony Burgess, Expository Sermons on John 17 in 1656. It is a pestilent opinion to think that every man may be saved if he do in the general acknowledge Christ. It is said, Acts 2, verse 21, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, not on the Lord, but on the name of the Lord. By the name of the Lord is meant all that which shall be revealed to us of the Lord Jesus in the Scriptures. The meaning is, Whosoever doth receive acknowledge and worship Christ according to what the scriptures do reveal and testify of him shall be saved. I shall not take upon me to determine what articles are absolutely necessary to salvation. It would be hard to define and we know not by what rule to proceed. In the general it is exceeding dangerous to lessen the misery of man's nature, the merit and satisfaction of Christ 
for the care of good works, taken from Thomas Matson, from 1620 to 1677, Expositions on John 17. I am glad you know when persons are justified. It is a lesson I have not yet learnt. There are so many stony ground hearers that receive the word with joy that I have determined to suspend my judgment till I know the tree by its fruits. The way the Spirit of God takes is like that we take in preparing the ground. Do you think any farmer would have a crop of corn next year unless they plow now? And you may as well expect a crop of corn on unplowed ground as a crop of grace until a soul is convinced of its being undone without a Savior. That is the reason we have so many mushroom converts, so many persons that are always happy, 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 and never were miserable. Why? Because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have not got a conviction of the law. They are stony ground hearers. They hear the word with joy, and in a time of temptation, which will soon come after a seeming or real conversion, they fall away. They serve Christ as the young man served the Jews that laid hold on him, who, when he found he was like to be a prisoner for following Christ, left his garments. And so some people have their profession. That makes me so cautious now that I was not thirty years old of doubting converts so soon. I love now to wait a little and see if people bring forth fruit, for there are so many blossoms which March winds you know blow away that I cannot believe they are converts till I see fruit brought forth. It will do converts no harm to keep them a little back. It will never do a sincere soul any harm. Taken from George Whitfield, 1714 to 1770. I have sometimes thought when I have heard addresses from some revival brethren who had kept on saying time after time, Believe, 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 that I should like to have known for myself what it was we were to believe in order to our salvation. There is, I fear, a great deal of vagueness and crudeness about this matter. I have heard it often asserted that if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, you will be saved. My dear hearer, do not be deluded by such an idea. You may believe that Jesus Christ died for you and may believe what is not true. You may believe that which will bring you no sort of good whatsoever. That is not saving faith. The man who has saving faith afterwards attains to the conviction that Christ died for him, but it is not of the essence of saving faith. Do not get that into your head, or it will ruin you. Do not say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for me, and because of that, feel that you are saved. I pray you to remember that the genuine faith that saves the soul has for its main element trust, absolute rest of the whole soul, on the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, whether he died in particular or in special to save me or not, and relying as I am wholly and alone on him, I am saved. Afterwards I come to perceive that I have a special interest in the Savior's blood. But if I think I have perceived that before I have believed in Christ, then I have inverted the scriptural order of things, and I have taken as a fruit of my faith that which is only to be obtained by rights by the man who absolutely trusts in Christ in Christ alone to save. Taken from C. H. Spurgeon, 1834 to 1892. Sermons, Volume 58, pages 
583 to 584. Sometimes we are inclined to think that a very great portion of modern revivalism has been more a curse than a blessing because it has led thousands to a kind of peace before they have known their misery. Restoring the prodigal to the father's house and never making him say, Father, I have sinned. How can he be healed who is not sick or he be satisfied with the bread of life who is not hungry? The old-fashioned sense of sin is despised and consequently a religion is run up before the foundations are dug out. Everything in this age is shallow. Deep-sea fishing is almost an extinct business so far as men's souls are concerned. The consequence is that men leap into religion and then leap out again. Unhumbled they came to the church, unhumbled they remain in it, and unhumbled they go from it. Taken from C. H. Spurgeon, The Sword and Trowel, 1882. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep, and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, and knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn and the ear. Sowers of the seed of eternal life are here implicitly bidden to have faith in the word they preach, for it is the seed of God. When it has found place in a heart, they are not to be tormented with anxiety concerning the final issue as though they were to keep it alive, and that it could only live through them. For this of maintaining its life is God's part and not theirs, and he undertakes to fulfill it. 1 Peter 1, verses 23-25 through 25. They are instructed also to rest satisfied that it should grow and spring up without their knowing the exact steps of this growth. Let them not be searching at its roots to see how they have stricken into the soil, nor seek prematurely to anticipate the shooting of the blade or the forming of the corn in the ear. For the mystery of the life of God in any and in every heart is unsearchable. All attempts to determine that its course shall be exactly this way or that way can only work mischief. It has a law indeed of orderly development, first the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. Words which suggest a comparison with 1 John 2 verse 12 through 14 where in like manner the apostle distributes the faithful according to their progress in the spiritual life into little children, young men, and fathers. But this law is hidden in the works of God in nature where he never exactly repeats himself are not more manifold than are his works in grace. Therefore let the messengers of the gospel be content that the divine word should grow in a mysterious manner, in one whereof the processes are hidden from themselves. In the seed once sown and having taken root, let them commit what remains to God, being satisfied that this seed is incorruptible, and that he will bring his own work to perfection. Taken from Richard Trench on the seed growing secretly, in his notes on the parables of our Lord. American Protestantism is characterized by a peculiar evil which I may describe by the term spurious revivalism. It has been often called 
the new measure system. The common mischief resulting from all its forms is the over-hasty reception into the communion of the churches of multitudes of persons whom time proves to have experienced no spiritual change. This disastrous result is in some churches wrought without the machinery of sensational excitements, as were Pelagian or ritualistic teachings encourage men to come in heedlessly and coldly upon a mere profession of historical faith. In most cases, however, these mischievous comings are brought about by sensational human expedients. The ill-starred artists stimulate natural remorse in the merely sympathetic excitements of the natural feelings and deceive themselves and encourage their victims to be deceived into mistaking these agitations for the real and saving work of the Holy Spirit with a criminal recklessness. They overlook the vital distinctions which the religious guide ought to make, which I have pointed out in the 21st article of my Collected Discussions, Volume 1, in Exposition of 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10-15. through 15. This lamentable art has grown in America to great dimensions. The victims of its deception are to be counted by myriads. Its efforts for good are so fleeting that a religious profession has become contemptible in the eyes of critical worldly men. Many churches are loaded down with dead members. Church discipline becomes impracticable. This nominal membership includes tens of thousands of silent infidels who have inferred from the manifest deceitfulness of their own hot religious experience the deceptiveness of the gospel itself. The average standard of Christian morals is degraded throughout the country. The experience of a long life compels me sorrowfully to testify against this method of accessions as the grand peril and curse of American Protestantism. It has shorn the gospel among us of the larger part of its purifying power and Christ of his honor until our average Protestantism can scarcely boast of higher moral results than American popery. The mortifying result is that after 90 years of boasted activity and assertive success in these species of evangelism, in these United States, breeding and good manners, domestic purity, temperance, business morals, and political morals are at a lower ebb than in any nation in Protestant Christendom. The evil has become gigantic and demands solemn protest and resistance. I know it is an unpopular thing for a minister of the gospel to bear this witness, but it is true. In my regard for that account which I must soon render at a more awful bar than that of arrogant public opinion demands its utterance. Taken from R. L. Dabney on Discussions, Volume 3, 1892, pages 563 to 564. Most would agree with my sixth point, which is that this method tends to produce superficial conviction of sin, if any at all. People often respond because they have the impression that by doing so they will receive certain benefits. I remember hearing of a man who was regarded as one of the star converts of a campaign. He was interviewed and asked why he had gone forward in the campaign the previous year. His answer was that the evangelist had said, if you do not want to miss the boat, you had better come forward. He said that he did not want to miss the boat, so he had gone forward. And all the interviewer could get out of him was that he somehow felt that he was now on the boat. 
He was not clear about what this meant, not what it was, and nothing had seemed to happen to him during the subsequent year. But there it was. It can be as superficial as that. Or take another illustration out of my own experience. In the church where I ministered in South Wales, I used to stand at the main door of the church at the close of the service on Sunday night and shake hands with people as they went out. The incident to which I am referring concerns a man who used to come to our service every Sunday night. He was a tradesman, but also a very heavy drinker. He got drunk regularly on Saturday night, but he was also regularly seated in the gallery of our church every Sunday night. On a particular night to which I am referring, I happened to notice while preaching that this man was obviously being affected. I could see that he was weeping copiously, and I was anxious to know what was happening to him. At the end of the service, I went and stood at the door. After a while, I saw this man coming, and immediately I was in a real mental conflict. Should I, in view of what I had seen, say a word to him and ask him to make a decision that night, or should I not? Would I be interfering with the work of the Spirit if I did so? Hurriedly I decided that I would not ask him to stay behind, so I just greeted him as usual and he went out. His face revealed that he had been crying copiously, and he could scarcely look at me. The following evening I was walking to the prayer meeting in the church, and going over a railway bridge, I saw this same man coming to meet me. He came across the road to me and said, You know, doctor, if you had asked me to stay behind last night, I would have done so. Well, I said, I am asking you now. Come with me now. Oh, no, he replied, but if you had asked me last night, I would have done so. My dear friend, I said, if what happened to you last night does not last for twenty-four hours, I am not interested in it. If you are not as ready to come with me now as you were last night, you have not got the right, the true thing. Whatever affected you last night was only temporary and passing. You still do not see your real need of Christ. That is the kind of thing that may happen even when an appeal is not made. But when an appeal is made, it is greatly exaggerated, and so you get spurious conversions. As I have reminded you, even John Wesley, the great Armenian, did not make appeals to people to come forward. What you find so often in his journals is something like this. Priests at such and such a place, many seem to be deeply afflicted, but God alone knows how deeply. Surely that is very significant and important. He had spiritual understanding and knew that many factors can affect us. What he was concerned about was not immediate visible results, but the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. A knowledge of the human heart, of psychology, should teach us to avoid anything that increases the possibility of spurious results. Taken from D. M. Lloyd-Jones, giving eight reasons against calling for decisions. In Preaching and Preachers, 1971, pages 275 to 276. This is the end of the book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.